This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Hello, everyone. It is my pleasure to introduce Dr. Jennifer Jay, Professor of Civil and Environmental Engineering at UCLA and a researcher at the Institute of the Environment and Sustainability. Dr. Jay's integrative research incorporates field and laboratory approaches to understand the geochemical and microbial processes that impact the environment. We're thrilled to have her here today to speak about the effects of processed food and water use on our health and the environment. So without further ado. Um, I would just like to thank Samantha and Alyssa for inviting me here and all of you for coming. It's my honor to be here among this um, amazing panel. I learned so much this morning. I'm really grateful to be here. Um, and I'm also especially excited to talk about my favorite topics of research, which are the connections between food and the environment. So we are all aware that healthier food makes us healthier. Um, all those nutrients and fiber and fruits and veggies make us happy. Um, but there's this other uh, route for, toward our well-being that has to do with food that goes through the environment. We need to have healthy, efficient food systems to keep our planet healthy because we also need a healthy planet for our own well-being. And a good way to illustrate this is to look and see the kind of the negative case of what we just saw. Um, highly processed food, processed meats especially, our carcinogens, um, Unhealthy foods have a direct impact on our bodies. So we all know that. Um, and what is also true, kind of uh, analogous to the other statement, is that foods that are highly processed, that are high on the food chain, so a lot of animal foods, are, have detrimental effects on our environment. And these impacts are wide-ranging. So it's not just climate change. You probably have heard some foods are carbon intensive, have a big carbon footprint, water footprint, nutrient footprint, antibiotic resistance. It's all of these things that I'll, I'll touch upon. I'll try to give an overview as well as to go into my own uh, specialty. And so that leads to disruptions in our ecosystem and wide ranging. Um, only one is pictured here, which would be climate change. And if we are just taking climate change as an example and wondering how is our health impacted? There is a wide range of ways that our health is impacted, even just by this one environmental issue. One would be just the direct deaths from, in heat waves. So there's more extreme weather events leading to heat deaths. Of course, we see flooding. We see what's happening in the Carolinas. There's death um, having to do with that. Um, there, we, one of the talks earlier touched upon the change in vector-borne disease with climate change. So that is another way that climate impacts our health. Um, Waterborne disease, food insecurity. Many places in the world are having droughts that are unprecedented. So we, we're having increasing challenges with feeding a still growing population. So a lot of reasons to care about this, including emotional stress. We don't have to go any further than the, the news just to see what people are undergoing on the East Coast right now and to understand that climate change has a very human face. Um, while you can't tie any one storm to climate change, for sure what we're seeing now is unprecedented and is exactly in line with what's predicted in, by in, um, atmospheric scientists and meteorologists. Uh, 
So how do we take care of the planet? This is one of my favorite diagrams. It might be a little hard to see, so I'll just tell you what it says. And you can go to it if you like. It's by Rockstrom et al. But it's basically a summary of all the different processes that we need to take care of uh, for a healthy environment. So you do see climate change up there, but that's just one slice of the pie. If you go around the pie, there are a whole bunch of other things, including biodiversity loss, land use change, water use, nitrogen, phosphorus, we can't disrupt those cycles too much. So the diagram shows you all these factors and it also gives you a measure of how we're doing as a global society in taking care of these particular processes in order to keep the planet stable. So it's actually called planetary boundaries, a safe operating space for humanity saying, yes, we're going to pave some land, we're going to use some water, but how much? And it even quantifies when we, we are exceeding uh, sustainable limits. So um, we are now currently outside the safe zone on four different of these boundaries. A few years ago, it was only three. So this is a concept that can be used for um, understanding our changing impact on the environment. So it's really fascinating. And I'll go through some of the details or some of the topics on this graph, we'll keep, keep coming back to this one. We'll delve into just a couple because we don't have much time. But you could, of course, go and study any one of these in great detail. Um, first would just be water because that's uh, an interesting one. This, I might ask this in classes I teach in environmental science. If you make a liter of soda, how many liters of water go into that? Does anyone have a guess? Five. A lot of people guess 10, it's typical uh, guesses, so you guys right in line with what's usually. Um, so this is the water footprint of one liter of soda, 340 to 620. That sounds unbelievable. So it's from this book. I went and got that book, did all the research. It's because of the sugar. And we all know, especially the people studying now soda bands, there's so much sugar in that uh, soda affecting our bodies it's also affecting the planet, requiring land use, fertilizer, and a lot of water. Um, and there's a range there depending on which type of sugar, and it does matter where you grow the sugar. Some places are more suitable for growing water-intensive crops. Um, another one we often hear, beef, um, requires a lot of water. And that's not because those beef cattle are drinking a lot of water, right? It's because of all of the feed crops that go into um, the maintaining the, the organism throughout the time that it's being fed. Um, uh, so coming down a little bit, down to the figure to the lower left, land use. So this is another really big part of our food system. Our food system, the way it is now, requires a lot of land use. So roughly 50% of the, of the United States is devoted to agriculture. So there are incredible statistics out there. Remember, we still have a growing population, two more billion people are coming. How are we going to feed them with our current food system? A lot of the arable land is already being farmed. Okay, so what's really good to remember is that we're not eating the vast majority of those crops. The vast majority of those crops are going to farm animals, so it just, it brings in a, um, it's in an inefficiency in the system, actually, if we're using more and more resources to uh, make proteins or uh, things we would like to eat um, with all of that feed. Whenever we change land use, we're also changing habitats. So that leads to the next, um, I won't go into too much detail, but biodiversity loss 
is actually a major challenge facing humanity right now. Um, it's one of those planetary boundaries that was beyond sustainable limits because we have so many extinctions. More than 100 times the background rate of extinction is happening right now, um, largely because of land use change. Also climate change, also pollution. Okay. And then next, let's talk just a little bit about pollution. Um, we see here a, a person in the field with the pesticides, and I chose that picture on purpose because as much as we may worry about residues in food we buy, some people are actually working in the chemicals as, we've, as we all know and think about and worry about. And so that's another uh, reason to uh, minimize that as much as possible. I did want to show you this interesting article that was uh, put out by the Environmental Working Group. Um, it's, it was called Breakfast with a Dose of Roundup. Um, so glyphosate is, another, is the active ingredient in Roundup. And if you make plants that are Roundup ready, that means that they're, they're okay with, uh, they can withstand high concentrations of the Roundup or the glyphosate. And so they can withstand it, but that means you can add more and more if, if you are farming those crops. So you can add higher levels of the, of the glyphosate. And so this article, I highly encourage you to go look at it because most of us buy oats. I don't know. I love a lot of different oat products. Then they list it by brand and by product. So you can go through and there's 60 or so different products and you can see your exact thing that you buy, you know, Bob's Red Mill, whatever, <laughs> down to that level. And you can see the measurements that they took. And it was, it's really remarkable because the organic ones are so much lower. Occasionally they had trace. Five of 16 organic ones had small amounts. None were high. Like it was very kind of clear message. And then many, 43 out of 45 had detectable um, glyphosate. And so this is a probable carcinogen at this point. There's a lot of science, so, um, and we really need to pay attention to these things that are labeled probable carcinogens. It takes a lot of science that goes into that. And right now, the current administration is not protecting people. Even when there's a lot of science out indicating that chemicals are dangerous, the administration is trying to deregulate. They're in that phase, as, as we all know. Um, so we need to watch out for that. Um, okay, so back to this uh, table of contents diagram. Let's talk a little bit about antibiotic resistance. Um, another really important issue, um, because right now we take for granted that antibiotics are going to help us with small infections, with surgeries. We just take for granted that they're going to work. But more and more, you may just find in your circles, there's anecdotal there's stories of people facing antibiotic resistance. And you'll hear it more and more because the, the, it really is increasing worldwide. Um, and people are even saying, not people, the World Health Organization is saying that it threatens the achievement of modern medicine. So those are big um, words that people are using to talk about um, antibiotic resistance. And just to review a little bit, um, what happens when, say, you have a bunch of pathogens and that purple one has figured out how to withstand the, the drug. It's figured it out, and it's carrying an, an antibiotic resistance gene that gives it a skill. It could maybe make a pump that gets rid of the drug or something. So uh, that purple one has this skill that lets it survive. So when all the others die, and that what do you think is going to happen with the next generation? It's all purple, right? So this is how resistance happens. It's a natural process. Whenever you don't quite kill all of them, 
the resistant ones are going to spread. So it's important to understand it happens anyway, but it happens more when we, put, when we don't take our antibiotics properly or when we just put more out there, okay, when we're just using more and more antibiotics. Okay, so let's talk about where our antibiotics go. If we make 100, out of 100% of our antibiotics, how many do you think that we take as humans? 20, yeah. So actually, you, uh, there are some estimates up to 30. So between 70 to 80% um, goes to the food system, goes to animals um, mostly for growth promotion. They just grow faster living um, in confined animal feeding operations. Um, so I, I just, this is a lot on this diagram, but just to show you that the body of the animal then turns into basically a little reactor for that selective process, right? So you've got the bacteria that are associated with that animal, and when you're giving low levels of antibiotics, it's basically going to uh, kill off just the susceptible, leave the resistant, and you get resulting Re, um, magnify, magnification of resistant organisms. Where does that go? I've been studying the fecal matter <laughs> that, uh, that uh, <laughs> it comes out, um, and you can actually, has anyone driven along the five and at some point smelled something odorous? Okay, so my um, foray into this field was a road trip to San Francisco that I was taking with my family, we just were kind of nerds, so we had made some Petri dishes in my lab, and then we held them out the window just to see what was there. And we thought we were doing something crazy, but it turns out someone else had published a paper. We ended up presenting the results at a conference, because so, we saw so much. We, um, and I was surprised. Just because you smell something doesn't mean it's a bacterial cell. I thought it was just an odor, but it, it was a lot of bacterial cells. And then we, I had a whole bunch of volunteers uh, making pure colonies, making pure cultures out of 1,200 of the colonies that we collected, not just on the petri dishes, but by taking air samples as well, um, uh, different, uh, near different farms. And basically, here are some of the results. But we compared or feedlots to organic farms. We saw antibiotic resistance everywhere, um, but we did see more resistance when the cows were being given antibiotic uh, antibiotics. This was another interesting graph that we did early on, just showing that manured fields had the same, we all know that same smell, right, when you're going by the fields. That, those fields also had high levels of antibiotic-resistant bacteria in the air. Um, and, so, and that's after even the manure has been composted in some way, but we found a, a, quite a bit in our samples. Um, so we've been trying to figure out how to get money to study farm workers because they're working in the fertilizers. We've been studying the fertilizers. We really want to study farm workers. Um, Try to get some funding for that. And at the same time, my student who is a surfer said, oh, can we study surfers? I'm like, okay, it's the same methods. Let's do it. And so that one we've been able to get some money for. So this is what we've been doing this summer. <laughs> we've been sticking Q-tips up the noses of surfers down in Venice Beach and El Porto. Um, and we actually have seen MRSA um, in the ocean water and at varying levels and in the noses. So that's a little bit on antibiotic resistance. Now to my other love, which is climate change. 
So um, big role for livestock in climate change. We'll see why. Um, I won't spend too much time on the background, but we've definitely increased greenhouse gases since Industrial Revolution. Earth is warming. I mean, you wouldn't think it would be necessary to say these things. Hopefully it's not in this room, but um, we do have uh, 2018 to be on pace to be the fourth hottest year ever recorded. And 16 of the 17 hottest years have happened this century, so that says something too. Um, and so where does this tie in? Where, um, what have I been doing with this? Is looking at how different foods and different um, diets are play a role in climate change. And so I don't know if you can see the uh, slides, but basically, oh, sorry about that. I should have made the font bigger. It's a bunch of different foods. So it's potatoes, oatmeal, mushrooms, chickpeas, all that's at the top. And at the bottom, we have pork, chicken, cheese, lamb, and beef. So you kind of get the idea of the slide from just verbal. Um, there's two main takeaways of the slide. One is that the animal products are at the bottom in general, even chicken and pork, just because of that, the, having to maintain the animal all that time and grow all those crops. Those crops require nitrogen, which is very expensive with respect to climate to produce and water sometimes can require energy to pump. All, these, um, all of that energy goes into the feed for the animal. So that's why animal products tend to be higher, um, well, lower on this, have higher carbon footprints. Um, two of them stick out. So you notice most of the foods are kind of, you can see the size of the bar. Two of them really stick out, and that would be lamb and beef. And that is because those particular animals are ruminant animals, they don't mean to be impacted in the climate, but it's just their natural digestion, right? They eat grass, they make methane in, in their gut. So certain products, that's why beef, that's why ever, there's something even called a climate carnivore, which is where you still want to eat a meat, same amount maybe, but just not beef. So that's called a climate carnivore. And it makes a huge difference actually, a really big impact. So uh, what we've been having fun with at UCLA is making education, and we've actually been studying how the education actually does result in voluntary changes in people's diets. So we've been doing fun things like um, calculations of real things that people would eat and putting it on table tents at the university. So if you see here, the white numbers are carbon footprints of the different ingredients in a burrito. So just sort of get a sense of what those numbers are. Four, 33, 19, total of 88. Now I'm going to show you the beef burrito so that you can see the massive effect. Just the small amount of cheese beats the whole other burrito, okay? So the numbers don't lie. The numbers, these are, um, you know, many, many studies supporting these numbers. And so we find that just telling people, it helps them make choices that are different. And so I've started a uh, blog and Instagram. If you, wanna, if you like this kind of information, you like recipes, you want to... Um, you can follow the blog there. It's Meals for Planet with the number four. So these are the kind of calculations I've been doing just for fun, uh, for, for education, for purposes. Uh, the research aspect is just seeing how it changes people's diet, which has been really cool, actually. Uh, so I'll have students in class do an exercise, like create a sandwich, and they have to calculate the carbon footprint. So for example, their burgers, 3,000 grams, the peanut butter and jelly is actually 200 grams, so what does that mean? And just one final point. Does anyone else in the room wish we were part of the Paris Climate Accord? Yeah. 
Okay, I really wish to be a part of it. But the cool thing is, okay, so let me tell you a teeny bit that I learned about the Paris Climate Accord. That's the number, 447 million metric tons CO2 that our country has to reduce every year. That sounds like overload. It's crazy. I can't even conceptualize that number. But what happens if you divide it by the population? It's actually a really doable number, which is a very cool concept. So um, it's 3,000 it's 3, plus grams. You remember what the burger was, 3,000 grams. So it's numbers that we see when we calculate our footprint for transportation, our food. It's kind of doable to meet that as a, on a personal level. Uh, you can do that through you know, transportation, uh, consumption, your diet. And so that's kind of been a latest um, passion of mine. And while you're saving the planet, you also make yourself healthier um, to boot. So there's these co-benefits that are really important. Sorry, I went way over. Any questions? You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.